Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the Doctrine of Christ, Part 15. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Today we come to the so-called satisfaction theory of the atonement. This was developed by none other than St. Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, during the 11th century. And yes, this is the same Anselm that gave us the ontological argument for the existence of God. As if that weren't enough for his claim to fame, even more significant is Anselm's treatise on the atonement called Cur Deus Homo, which being translated means, why did God become man? Why did God become man? This is a work of unsurpassed importance in the history of the doctrine of the atonement. It constitutes a watershed between the patristic and the medieval church. Although Anselm's comprehensive theory of the atonement includes elements of the ransom theory of the church fathers, uh, including God's victory over Satan uh, and even a rationale for God's not uh, achieving um, atonement without the death of Christ, nevertheless, the fundamental thrust of Anselm's theory is very different from that of the church fathers and it forever altered Christian thinking on the doctrine of the atonement. Anselm's main complaint about the ransom theory is that it's inadequate to explain why God would take the extraordinary step of sending his son to suffer and die a horrible death in order to redeem mankind. An omnipotent God could have freed mankind from the bondage to Satan directly without any need of an incarnation. And you cannot claim that in doing so God would have violated the rights that Satan has over man because man owes nothing to the devil. He has no rights over humanity. And moreover, God owes the devil nothing but punishment. Um, and certainly needn't respect his rights by offering a hostage to Satan uh, for the redemption of mankind. So, in contrast to these ransom theories, Anselm argues that the salvation of mankind is about a lot more than just defeating Satan and liberating people from sin. Rather, it is about making satisfaction to God for man's sins. And he believes that that necessitated the incarnation and the suffering of Christ. Unfortunately, Anselm's theory is frequently misrepresented in the secondary literature, especially by those who are critical of it. Typically, you'll hear it said that Anselm's fundamental concern is with the restoration of God's honor. God has been insulted by human beings in sinning against him, and thereby they have besmirched God's honor. 
And in order to restore God's honor, the incarnation and the death of Christ was thought to be necessary. Now, having laid out the theory in those terms, Anselm is then typically criticized for neglecting the moral aspects of the atonement, ignoring the demands of justice uh, in favor of simply uh, remedying an insult that has been paid to God. People will sometimes say that Anselm portrays God as a sort of feudal monarch or lord, uh, reflecting the feudal society of his time, whose uh, wounded ego demands that some satisfaction be given before he is willing to forgive the insult that has been rendered to him. And these critics will say, since God would be all the more magnanimous if he were to simply forgive the insult without demanding some kind of satisfaction or payment, Anselm's theory fails to show that Christ's atoning death was really necessary. Now, there are always elements of truth in every misrepresentation of a point of view. And that's true here as well. Uh, This uh, involves half-truths about Anselm's theory, but does not explain it accurately. A careful reading of St. Anselm reveals that his fundamental concern is, in fact, about God's justice and the moral demands of justice. Sin is materially bringing dishonor to God. That's true. That's the truth in this. Um, To sin is to bring dishonor to God. But the reason that God cannot just overlook the insult magnanimously is that because it would be unjust to do so, and so it would contradict the very nature of God, which is just. Anselm defines sin as the failure to render to God what is due to him. Sin is failing to render to God what is due to God. Well, what is due to God? Anselm answers, and I quote, it is that every wish of a rational creature should be subject to the will of God. So God's due is that uh, in everything we do, uh, we should do God's will. We should be subject to his will. Anselm says, and I quote, this is justice or uprightness of will, which makes a being just or upright in heart, that is, in will. And this is the sole and complete debt of honor which we owe to God and which God requires of us. End quote. So the honor that is due to God, on Anselm's view, is to be just or to be upright in will. Anselm says, and I quote, he who does not render this honor to God, uh, this honor which is due to God, robs God of his own and dishonors him, and this is sin. So the uh, essence of dishonoring God on Anselm's view is to fail to be upright in will, to be submissive to God's will, uh, and so to sin. Now, given the moral character of dishonoring God, Anselm asks, and I quote, 
whether it were proper for God to put away sins by compassion alone, without any payment of the honor taken from him, end quote. In other words, could God, out of his compassion, simply overlook the dishonor that human beings have done to him and, out of compassion, simply forgive them? And Anselm responds to this negatively. Again, I quote, To remit sin in this manner is nothing else than not to punish. And since it is not right to cancel sin without compensation or punishment, if it be not punished, then it is passed by undischarged." End quote. So his concern here is not merely with propriety, but that it would be wrong, morally wrong, it would be unjust to leave sin unpunished. His concern here is divine justice. He says, and I quote, truly such compassion on the part of God is wholly contrary to the divine justice, which allows nothing but punishment as the recompense for sin, end quote. So the fundamental problem is not honor, but justice. Man has dishonored God by sinning, but the reason that God cannot just overlook the offense is because it would be unjust to do so. Sin deserves punishment. And since God's nature is essentially just, uh, he would contradict his own nature if he were fail to uh, satisfy the demands of divine justice. So Anselm's fundamental concern in this theory is ethical and not merely with a sort of insulted dignity on God's part. It is true he's concerned with God's honor, but it is, it is fundamentally a concern of justice and not simply remedying an insult to a um, feudal uh, lord of sorts. Now, it's intriguing that Anselm sees the relevance of a so-called divine command theory of ethics to his concern with justice. If you remember when we talked about the attributes of God, and particularly the goodness of God, we talked about a divine command theory of ethics, which holds that uh, moral values are grounded in the character of God himself, that God himself is the standard of good and evil, and that our moral duties are constituted by his commandments. His moral nature expresses itself toward us in the form of certain divine commands, which then become our moral obligations or prohibitions. And Anselm uh, understands the relevance of such a divine command theory of ethics to his concern with justice. He asks, since God is subject to no law and his will determines what is right, why does he, being supremely merciful, not just ignore the injury done to him? Do you see what he's saying on a divine command theory of ethics? God has no moral obligations. There's no moral law hanging over him to which he must conform or which he must obey. He himself, by his will and commands, determines what is just or right. And so if that is the case, why can't he just overlook man's sin without acting unjustly in doing so? 
Well, Anselm, uh, I think, gives the correct response to the so-called euthyphro dilemma. If you remember, when we talked about this before, the euthyphro dilemma asked the question, is something um, good because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? If you say that something is good just because God wills it, then that seems to make good and evil arbitrary. But if you say, no, God wills something because it is good, then the good is independent of God. And there is a moral law hanging over God to which he must conform. But the answer to the Euthyphro dilemma is to say that's a false dilemma. That in fact God himself is the standard of right and wrong, good and evil, uh, and that it is his nature which is the paradigm and the yardstick for uh, what is good. And so Anselm holds to this view. He says, and I quote, there is nothing more just than supreme justice, which is nothing else but God himself. Supreme justice just is God himself. He says, God is not at liberty to do, quote, anything improper for the divine character, end quote. Since the nature of God sets limits to divine liberty, he says, and I quote, it does not belong to his liberty or compassion or will to let the sinner go unpunished, end quote. Again, I quote, therefore, as God cannot be inconsistent with himself, his compassion cannot be of this nature, end quote. The character or the nature of God himself necessitates that he punish sin. So on Anselm's view, retributive justice is not something that's just willed by God. It belongs to the very nature of God, and therefore God is not at liberty to act contrary to the demands of retributive justice. This would be to act contrary to his own nature, which is impossible. And therefore, the demands of divine justice must be satisfied. God can't just forgive sins or remit sins by his fiat. He, he must have the demands of justice satisfied. Now, in fact, Anselm recognizes two ways in which uh, divine justice might be satisfied. So if we think of the satisfaction of divine justice, this might be either through compensation or through punishment. These are the two ways in which divine justice might be satisfied, compensation or punishment. So he presents the atonement theorist with a dilemma. Since the demands of divine justice must be satisfied, there must be either punishment of sin or compensation for sin, one or the other, either punishment of or compensation for sin. Now Anselm himself chose compensation as the horn of the dilemma for his atonement theory. He assumed that punishment would result in the eternal damnation of mankind. If God punished mankind for its sins, then everyone 
would be eternally damned. And therefore, he chose compensation. By contrast, the later Protestant reformers will choose the punishment horn of the dilemma. It will be through punishment that God's justice is satisfied. Not our punishment, of course, at least in the case of the redeemed, but Christ's punishment in our place, substitutionary punishment. So Anselm and the Protestant reformers are very much on the same footing with respect to the satisfaction of divine justice. Both of them agree that God could not simply uh, forgive people's sins without satisfaction of divine justice, since that is essential to his nature. And some said, therefore, God will provide some sort of compensation to satisfy his justice, whereas the reformer said, no, God will provide a substitutionary punishment in order to satisfy his justice. Now, how does Anselm understand satisfaction? Well, he will define it as voluntary payment of the debt. He thinks of the satisfaction of God's justice as voluntary payment of the debt which is owed to God. So he says, the difficulty we face in paying the debt we owe to God is that there's nothing that we can give to God by way of compensation that we don't already owe him. Um, we owe everything to God. Our will is to be entirely submitted to God. Um, and therefore, we already owe God total obedience. So there's nothing that we can give God to compensate for our sins because we already owe him everything. Moreover, the situation is made worse by the fact that in order to compensate God adequately for the dishonor that we have done him, we would need to give back more than we originally owed. If you just give back what you originally owed, you've just done what you were supposed to do. You haven't compensated for your sins. So we would need to give back more than we originally owed. Uh, and then the gravity of our fence uh, is, compounds the situation. We've sinned against God himself. And therefore, we've dishonored God so that the debt that we owe, says Anselm, is a debt of infinite proportion, a debt which it is impossible for us to repay. So he says, no one but God could repay such a debt of such magnitude, but no one but man is obligated to pay it. And therefore, it follows that our salvation requires that God become man. What a wonderful syllogism that is. No one but God could pay this debt, but no one but man is obligated to pay it. And therefore, it follows that God had to become man if we are to be saved. So Anselm writes, and I quote, if it be necessary, therefore, that the heavenly kingdom be made up of men, and this cannot be effected unless the aforesaid satisfaction be made, which none but God can make, and none but man ought to make, it is necessary that the God-man make it. So that is the answer to his question, cur Deus homo, why the God-man, or why did God become man, uh, in order to make compensation for our sin. This is a satisfaction which none but God can make, 
and none but man is obligated to make. And therefore, it is necessary for the God-man to make this compensation. So Anselm affirms that in the Incarnation, the second person of the Trinity um, is united with a human nature such that Christ has two complete natures united in one person. He affirms an orthodox Christology, which we've already studied, of one person in two natures. And he compares this to the union of a rational soul and a body in every human being. Just as a human being is made up of a rational soul and body, so he says that in Christ there is one person who has two complete natures, human and divine. Now the gift that the incarnate Christ presents to God, the compensation that Christ gives to God, can be found, says Anselm, in nothing but himself. Uh, there is no finite good that Christ could give to God to compensate for the infinite debt we owe. So the adequate compensation can only be found in Christ himself, and therefore he must give himself to God on our behalf. Since Christ was sinless, he was under no obligation to die. By voluntarily laying down his life, he gives to God a gift of infinite value which he did not owe. Christ as man owed God obedience during his life, but because he was sinless, he did not owe his death. And therefore he presents his life to God as a gift of infinite value by giving up his life and dying on the cross. So on Anselm's view, it's important to understand that Christ did not die in our place. He was not punished for our sins, nor did he bear the penalty for our sins. Uh, this is not a substitutionary theory, such as the, the reformers later offered. Uh, when Anselm says that Christ allowed himself to be slain for the sake of justice, we've got to keep in mind that there are two ways of satisfying the demands of God's justice, either punishment or compensation. And Christ did not die as a substitutionary uh, punishment. Rather, he gave his life to God as a compensation, a gift um, for us, for our sin. So how does this work? How does the gift of Christ's life to God uh, win our salvation? Well, Anselm says that divine justice requires God the Father to reward the Son for the gift of his life. The Son has given to God this gift of infinite value, which he did not owe. And justice would require God the Father to give Christ a reward for so inestimable a gift. But how can a reward be bestowed on someone who needs nothing and owes nothing? Christ is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. So how can he be rewarded by God the Father? Anselm answers, the Son therefore gives the reward to those 
for whose salvation he became incarnate. He gives the reward to us. He remits the debt incurred by our sins, and he bestows on us the beatitude uh, that we had forfeited because of our sins. So God the Father, out of his justice, rewards or offers a reward to Christ for his infinite gift, but Christ in turn passes that on to us so that we now become the beneficiaries of God the Father's reward, which is eternal life, forgiveness of sins, um, and so forth. How do we become the beneficiaries then of Christ's reward that he offers to us? Well, Anselm says it is through faith in the gospel. I thought that was interesting that here this medieval Catholic theologian would recognize that the way in which we appropriate the benefits of Christ's death is through faith, faith in the gospel. And then he adds, by making the Son an offering for ourselves with the love that he deserves. We offer Christ uh, to God as an offering on our behalf and thereby become the beneficiary of his atoning death. Well, that is a summation of Anselm's satisfaction theory. There's a lot going on there. Who has a question or a, a point for discussion that you would like to raise? Okay, Bobby. Dr. Craig, um, are you familiar with theologians that make a strong case for satisfaction being both compensatory and serving as punishment? It's both and, not either it, it or? It tends so. to be either or, okay. um, Bobby. A strong proponent of a satisfaction theory today on the contemporary scene would be Richard Swinburne. He has enunciated such a theory, but Swinburne is not sympathetic, so far as I know, to substitutionary atonement or punishment. And those who do champion um, substitutionary punishment don't seem to have much room for compensation. But I, I don't think that there's any reason to think that these are mutually exclusive, that you couldn't combine both elements into one theory. I saw a very, very interesting suggestion in this regard uh, by the Christian philosopher Mark Murphy, where he points out that there's a difference in criminal law and civil law. As you know, sometimes a person can be prosecuted for a criminal offense, or they can be brought before the court for a civil offense. Remember, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty on the criminal offense of murder, but he was then found guilty in civil court of owing damages and compensation. So what Murphy suggests is maybe um, through substitutionary punishment, the criminal sentence of sin is discharged by Christ on our behalf. He has paid our sentence of death for sin so that the demands of God's criminal justice, as it were, are met by substitutionary atonement. But that still leaves room for civil damages that might be assessed, and perhaps Christ offers to God then um, this tremendous um, 
award or compensation that would be like the civil damages that still might be awarded even after the criminal um, case has been settled. So that's, that would be a provocative suggestion for combining uh, Christ's death as both substitutionary punishment and as offering compensation to God. Yes, Taiwan. In Ephesians 2, 14, for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of command, commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so make him peace, and that he may reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So this passage kind of say the objective is reconcile us to God and reconcile the accuser to the accused or the deceived to the deceiver. Or well, I, I would encourage you to look again at the context of that. I think that the reconciliation there that he's talking about is between Jew and Gentile. He's that, saying that God has broken down this wall of partition constituted by the law that separated Jews and Gentiles, and that now together we are reconciled in one body to God through the cross. I understand that is the the uh, traditional way of teaching, but if we see this this division all the way back in Genesis three, where uh, woman, the sea of the woman and the sea of the serpent are in enmity, and Christ come to bridge that enmity. Now, if I understand you, Tiwan, I I don't see anything like that in scripture. The enmity you're talking about is the enmity between man and Satan. And the closest that the atonement would come to that would be the ransom theory, where God has deceived Satan and liberated us from his power. But he's not reconciling us to Satan. No. He's not trying to remove the enmity between Satan and us. The enmity that he's talking about is not only between Jew and Gentile, but between man and God. Paul says, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And so there is a reconciliation of man to God, but I don't see any idea that there's a reconciliation between man and Satan. Well, I see the enmity as the deceiver and the seed of the deceiver and the deceived. Well, now that would be Satan, right? Right. The deceiver. And we are under Satan's deception, and we are to, our salvation is to come to the seed of the woman into Christ's redemption. Yes, we're to be freed. That's, That's true. right. I, I think that is the proper insight of the ransom view, is that... Our salvation does involve this element of redemption, yes. of liberation from sin, yes. corruption, death, and Satan. Right. But I'm persuaded that Anselm is correct, that it has a lot, lot more than that uh, to it. It has also to do with satisfaction of divine justice, yes. which isn't included in that redemption or ransom model. Okay, well, one more comment. Sure. I'll let you have the last word, and then we'll go to Dr. Bob. 
Go ahead. Well, the satisfaction is that for the accused, there he, Christ cross take away the the right to accuse anybody. For the accuser, Christ's death take away their right to to accuse. Certainly. Okay, but for the accused, Christ's substitution satisfied that. Well, now that would be the case on the reformers' view, where you have substitution. But remember here. On Anselm's view, it's not a substitutionary theory. It's so tempting for us Protestants to read it as a substitutionary theory, that he died in our place. But that's not the theory on Anselm's view. It's that Christ is able to pay the debt of sin that we owe to God. Um, and so he, he gives us, he gives to us the wherewithal to compensate God. Okay, now to Dr. Bob. I'm a little surprised that Anselm's theory was seen as groundbreaking in light of Romans 3, 25 and 26. Uh -huh. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There, I mean, this seems to encapsulate it very well and the possessive pronoun indicates that God had nothing hanging over his head making him do it. He, it was his justice that was yes. violated. Now this, I can see, and I, and I certainly have no qualm with Anselm. He did a beautiful job of encapsulating this. And the idea of being either punishment or compensation, he came up with that. And I suppose that's the first time I'd been confronted with that. And I'd wonder if there's some other alternatives. I'd have to think about that to see. But Good question. But, but certainly, uh, I even agree with him more on the compensation than the punishment part. God wasn't oh. out for blood. He was out to satisfy his justice, his uh -huh. justice. All right. Well, you've said a lot there. Let me just um, <laughs> respond by saying, of course, we should find biblical antecedents of these theories, all of them, because otherwise they could hardly be Christian theories of the atonement. So, yes, in the scriptures you'll find ransom sayings. You'll find sayings that could talk about satisfaction of divine justice and God's justice being met. Um, and we'll see, I think, that there are passages in the scripture that talk about substitutionary punishment. So, when I say it's groundbreaking, what I mean is that for 900 years, the church fathers explicated this ransom theory of God's paying a ransom to Satan to let the hostages go free, and thereby tricked Satan. After Anselm, that theory disappears from church history. It is a watershed between the patristic and the medieval period. And so it truly is groundbreaking, and the ransom theory has never come back. Uh, it, it really was laid to rest by Anselm, and the reformers then, as we'll see, will want to push even further than Anselm in, in developing their theory of the atonement. But we shouldn't diminish Anselm's contribution to this doctrine. All right, with that, we're at the end of our time, so let's uh, pray, and we will close the class. Father in heaven, we thank you that when all that we deserved was condemnation and death, when the demands of your justice 
were not satisfied, and we were estranged from you, that you out of your great love sent forth Christ to die for us, to redeem us from sin, to satisfy the demands of your own justice, and thereby to give us forgiveness and eternal life. Help us to live in light of these glorious truths through Christ our redeeming Lord, we pray. Amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.